Good morning. The question that we um, asked the students in the video is, how has Christ satisfied you? How has Jesus satisfied you? Because uh, we're going to be in a story this, uh, this morning where we're going to see the satisfaction that comes from that comes from Jesus Christ. And, and so it's, as we walk through the book of John, um, there's going to be weeks where uh, students will be up here. There'll be videos played where the students will be asked questions pertaining to that passage. And so that's what you saw this morning is the students answering the question, how has Jesus Christ satisfied you? Um, and I think it's a question that we all need to ask, and we need to ask often. It's good to remember, it's good to reflect on how has Christ satisfied me? How has Christ brought me joy? Because I was reminded a couple of times this past week of, do you remember the time? Do you remember the time when you experienced the joy or the satisfaction of Christ for the first time? Do you remember Because in that moment, what has happened when you experience the joy and the satisfaction of Christ, what that is, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle at the fact that, uh, that, 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 that God can take a sinner who is inherently, innately full of sin, born in this condition, and renew him, put him in good standing, make him righteous. Through the blood of Christ. That in and of itself is a miracle. And so when you think about the first time that you experience the joy or the satisfaction of Christ, that is the power of the Holy Spirit moving in you. You are experiencing a miracle. And we're going to look at a story this morning. We're going to see the first miracle that Jesus does in his ministry. The first seven miracles or signs that he does. And this morning, I'll just come out and say this morning, we're going to be looking at the joy that Jesus has brought. And I think it's important for us to look at the joy that Jesus has brought because I think a lot of times, a lot of times as Christians, a lot of times as church, we either find ourselves in this place of drudgery all the time. We don't look like joyful people. We become a people of problems. A lot of times the society or culture looks at the church and goes, I don't see a whole lot of joy going on. I see a lot of, a lot of people with problems who are expressing those and there just seems to be a lot of drudgery. And so it's important for us to recognize Jesus Christ's joy, his satisfaction, and to, and to go back and reflect and remember on, the, on, on the, the seasons and situations in our lives where we experience those things. Because I know as, a, as somebody who's called to be a light into the world, well, I'm not trying to put off drudgery. That doesn't seem to me to glorify Christ. God's renown doesn't seem to be spread and shared when I'm walking around with no joy. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dive in this one and go, how do I experience that joy? Because this is not a conceptual joy. Where it's not understanding, okay, I understand that Christ came to, to, to bring joy. But this is an experiential thing. You get to experience this. You get to taste and see that it's good. There's joy to be encountered there's joy. You, 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 there's joy to meet. And then there's joy that you can express. 
It's not just a conceptual idea. If you've got your Bibles, flip to John chapter 2. This is the first sign that Jesus does as he's, as he's beginning his ministry. Okay, this is his, his, this is his opening campaign, right? His opening campaign, if he was running for president, this, this, this was his initial, hey, here I am. This is what, I, this is what I've come for. Okay, and so as we look at this, it's important to go, this is the first one. It's important to understand, okay, then what did Jesus do? Okay, because I want to answer three questions for you this morning. What did Jesus come to do is the first one. What did he come to do? The second one is, is why. Why did he do it? Okay, and the third one is how did he do it? What did Jesus come to do? Why did Jesus do it? And how did he do it? Okay, so let's read the story. John chapter 2, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. My hour has not yet come. Let's stop right there and just because I want to give you an understanding. In In the Jewish culture in this time, weddings were the biggest thing that happened in your life. The biggest thing that happened in your life, okay? It typically, when you got married in this time, you were teenagers, and this celebration lasted a week long. I mean, the community came together. This was a big deal, a really big deal, okay? And so at the, the, Jesus, you know, his mother and his disciples, they're at this wedding, and, his, and Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, hey, they ran out of wine, Okay? And I want you to understand this, to run out of wine is a big deal. Because this was a culture and a setting, you know, in a context where shame and guilt was still very present in this culture. We talked about the first week of the series where, you know, shame and guilt in our Western culture today seems to be losing its hold. Because we, 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 we are living in such a secular world where it's such a, a subjective truth. That shame and guilt no longer, no, no longer exist because you can't do anything wrong. Because the truth is, whatever you want it to be. And so if, you can't do, if, you, if you're not doing anything wrong, then there's no shame and guilt present. In this culture, shame and guilt was still very present. And so to run out of wine at your wedding which was the groom's responsibility, there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, a lot of dishonor that happens. It's dishonoring to the parents, to the family, and to the guests to run out of wine. And so there's a problem here. There's a problem, okay? That's why, that's, that's why Jesus' mother says they've run out of wine, and Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? When he says woman, it's not a term of disrespect, but it signifies, there's a, there, there's, it's, a, it's a word that means a polite distance. There's a distance between Mary and Jesus. There's distance, which, which reveals the distinctness, the separation of who Jesus is as the son of God against the backdrop of everybody else. And even his own mother, he says, woman, this word that has this polite distance attached to it. And what Jesus is really saying when you dive into that is that, mom, you need to approach me as everybody else needs to approach me. A sinner who's in need of a savior. 
Because you see this separation between Jesus and his family all the way going back to when he was a child. When he stayed at the temple and his parents are freaking out, where, 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 where's, our, you know, where's his son? Where's Jesus? He goes, hey, don't you know I'm in my father's house? But Jesus, Jesus, in his mind, there has always been this distinctness about himself. And so, you know, his mom says, hey, they ran out of wine. And Jesus goes, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does that mean, my hour has not yet come? Jesus, as we move through the book of John, we're going to see several times Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And this is, this is the first piece to what did Jesus come for? If he's saying my hour has not yet come, what did he come for? Well, when he's saying my hour has not yet come, we'll see in John chapter 12 that this is referring to his suffering, his death and his resurrection for you. That's what he means when he says my hour has not yet come for, for me to fulfill what God's will is for me, for you. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There's a problem at this wedding. And the problem is that, you know, wine in this time, you know, as Solomon says in Proverbs, wine was the attendance, it had this, uh, you know, aspect that gladdened the heart. Wine had a purpose. God gave wine a purpose. To be enjoyed under self-discipline and wisdom, but to be enjoyed. It had a purpose. And so at this wedding, they had run out of this wine. And so there was joy that was missing. And so Jesus' opening campaign, you find him, John records, you find him at a wedding where they've ran out of wine and his first sign and his first miracle is to continue the festivities And the joy of a wedding to continue to provide the festivities and joy of a wedding ceremony. This is what Jesus does first. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first thing Jesus does is to bring joy to a wedding. That's what he did in the immediate context. But remember, let's back up to my hour has not yet come. When his mother approaches him, Jesus is already, he's thinking, he's thinking future. You see that here when he says, my hour is not yet come. It's not time for me to die. It's not time for me to suffer yet. 
Because Jesus knows it's going to take my death, it's going to take my suffering for you guys all to experience a transcendent, eternal joy. I understand. I understand. I, I, I can provide joy at this wedding, but there's something bigger on Jesus' mind. is that you need, you, you need a transcendent joy. You need an eternal joy because you're, you're, you're outside of a relationship with God at this point. And you need my eternal joy, which transcends all situations, all seasons. And what it's going to take for you to experience that, to have that, is my suffering and my death. And my resurrection. And he says, but my hour has not yet come for that. But you see, you have to understand that Jesus' miracles are not just, he's not just a magician like waving a wand, just doing something for the sake of doing something. There's always a purpose There's always an intention. There's always a message for what he's doing. Yes, he provided joy at this wedding ceremony when they had run out of wine. The bigger message in what we see here is that's why Jesus came. That's why he came, to provide you joy. And it's going to take his suffering and his death and his resurrection for us to have it. But that's why he came. That's what he came for. Your joy. Because he loves you. And so as Christians, then it begs the question, do I, do, do I live like I have a whole lot of joy? You know, so before anybody showed up this morning, we were playing Wild Cherry. Play that funky music back here. About 9.15. You should have seen this room. Some of the people in this room were dancing. Mike Gettling walked in dancing. I mean, came straight through the doors. Didn't miss a beat. Just walked in, was dancing. You saw joy. Do we as Christians live in such a way, live in a lifestyle, where when people look at us, they go, that's a joy that looks different. That's a joy that tastes different. Where does that come from? Does it, do, do, do they start asking questions? Or are we have people who are so consumed with ourselves, so consumed with ourselves, that we do not express any joy because when anything, when anything comes or when anything happens in our lives, it consumes us and it is our filter for everything else. Because all we can think about is poor me or why. Why does this have to happen? Because that's what I see. I see a lot of that. Why does this have to happen? Poor me. And, and, and the reason why we get stuck in that, here's just the honest truth. I was having breakfast with somebody this week, and I, just, I asked them the question, what happened to us just being able to be just authentically honest with each other? What happened to that? And the honest truth to why we don't express joy in our life is because we're just so doggone selfish. We're so selfish. We get so consumed with ourselves and our situations that we don't express any joy because it, it just, it, it wraps everything. It wraps that we just, we just bundle everything into the, 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 the unjust or the, or the mistreatment that we feel like is happening to us.
But that's not what Jesus' joy is. It's not conditional. And so you can still experience joy in the midst of whatever season, in the midst of whatever situation. His joy transcends all things. Because what stands at the end is always this. If you believe in who Jesus is, eternity stands at the end for you in fellowship and relationship with God. That joy, thinking about that joy, transcends all situations. Because you are left saying, this isn't it. This isn't, it doesn't stop here. Which means I don't have to put all my weight into this sickness, or this medical condition, or these medical bills, or this divorce, or this whatever is going on in your life. Doesn't have to hold all of the weight. And it shouldn't. Because if it holds all the weight, then you are putting your hope in conditional things. You're putting your hope in worldly things. What did Jesus come to do? He came to give you joy. Just like here at the wedding. His mom says, Jesus, you got to do something. And he turns water into wine. And then the master at the wedding goes, this is the best wine I've tasted. Have, have, you, ever, you, know, th- have you ever thought about you know, back to the question I asked at the beginning. When, when, when was the first time in your life where you responded like the master of this wedding? After you had tasted the joy and the goodness of who Jesus Christ is. Have you ever responded like this master who had drunk freely on the wine earlier? And then when he tasted what Jesus had done, he said, you've saved the best wine to the end. Did you have that moment? Have you had that moment in your life where you've tasted Jesus Christ and everything else pales in comparison? Do you remember those times? As I was reflecting on that question this week, I I don't have a specific date when this happened in my life, but there are some events that happened where I knew that that the power of the gospel The transforming power of the gospel was underway in my life, and it tasted good. It tasted like nothing else I had drinking. And so there there, there were some events in my life where I knew something was going on, and I had this sense of fulfillment, this sense of satisfaction, this sense of purpose for the first time. Because at some point, while I was in college my senior year, I cared more about leading a Bible study in my locker room with my teammates than I cared about pitching. That was weird. When I, when I felt those desires, when my heart beat, was beating more for a Thursday night Bible study in our locker room with my teammates than going out on the mound, I knew something was up. And then I met my wife, my now wife, and I remember, I still remember very vividly to this day, we're sitting in my living room at college, and um, we had gotten engaged, and she said, you know, like every, like, like every woman asks, how'd you know it was me, right? You 
I want to hear it. How'd you know? Tell me. Remind me. I know you told me yesterday. Tell me again. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Anyway, not really. It's the truth. Okay? And so she asked me. We're sitting in the living room. And she goes, how'd you know it was me? And I still remember exactly what I said. I flipped open to Ephesians 5 and I said, I desire to love you like this. I desire to love you like this. And that was so radically different than any of my thoughts, perceptions, ideas about relationships. Because up until that point, I didn't care to love anybody like Ephesians 5. It was, I was in it for me. Whatever I could get out of it. It wasn't about the other person. And so I knew in that moment, something was going on. But it tasted good. You see, you need to understand that it's not just, it's not just what God asked of us. It's not just the right thing morally. It's not just what Jesus lived out. You have to understand there's joy attached at the end of righteousness. There's joy attached. It's not just something God asked us to do for, you know, just, just for the sake of asking us to do it. There's joy attached. There's satisfaction attached. So ask yourself the question, am I satisfied? Do I have joy? Or am I sitting at the table of this wedding feast and I've run out of wine? Because when Jesus shows up, He brings joy. When we are obedient to what he asks of us, there's joy and satisfaction attached. Because, but, so we got we to quit being deceived by Satan. That there's joy and satisfaction found somewhere else. Because it's not the truth. It's not the truth. The second question. How did he do it? How did Jesus turn the... Why did he do it? How is the last one? Why did he do it? Well, we know that the wedding was out of wine. That's why he came and turned the water into wine. And you need to understand that the bigger picture here, that God came to bring you joy, why he came and suffered and died to bring you joy is because there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. You probably don't hear that much at church. We, we, we're shy. We, we're scared of offending, making somebody uncomfortable. The Bible's really clear. Without the indwelling of Jesus Christ, without belief in who Jesus Christ is, we're separated from God. Unrighteous. There's something wrong. There was something wrong with this world. There was something wrong with humanity. There was something wrong with you and me. And so Jesus needed to come and do something about it. He needed to come restore that. If you don't believe me that there's something innately wrong about us, well, first I'd point back to Genesis, our forefathers. And after Adam and Eve had sinned for the first time, what'd they do? They covered themselves up. 
Before, they just walked freely naked. Gardening, doing whatever they're doing, hanging out in fellowship, communicating, just walking around naked, unashamed. They didn't know what it meant to be ashamed. Because they were in complete dependency, right standing with God. They acted as God intended for them to act. But when they sinned, when they were deceived and ate of the fruit of the tree... Then it says they covered themselves and hid for they were ashamed. They knew now there was something wrong with them. Why else would they cover up? And the same goes for us. We all have things in our life that we, that, that we try and cover up. You know. I don't have to tell you, you know. And you know that you are capable of sinful and evil things. You know that. I don't have to tell you. If you were honest with yourself, you'd know that there's something wrong with me. I am capable of sinful, evil things. And it's from the small things to to, to the larger things. In between. Everything in between. My wife and I are completely different. Completely different. She's a busybody, I'm not. And so at nine o'clock at night when she's still, because this is just how she is, when she's still cleaning and putting things in order, and I get so mad sitting on the couch. Because like, you know how dishes are when they hit the, hit the dishwasher, it makes a ton of noise. You know, you turn the water on, it makes noise. You walk around, our floors creak, it makes noise. And I'm like trying to sit there and enjoy watching a movie, watching a game. And I just got like 30 different noises going off in the background. You know, she's walking back and forth between the TV and she's picking up JoJo's toys. And I'm like, oh, sit down, sit down. You're driving me crazy. Sometimes I say, you're giving me a headache. Sit down, okay. But the things that go on in my head, and this, is, this, this, is a re, this reveals my problem, my problem. It's not a statement about my wife. It's my problem. It's my sinful problem. Because I think thoughts in my head when she's doing this, oh, I get so angry. I get so angry. There's something wrong with us. It's why Jesus came. And I can, I'm going to tell you this. If you hear anything this morning, you need to hear this. You will never, ever, ever experience the transcendent, eternal joy that Jesus has brought for you if you do not recognize, I am in need of a Savior. There is something wrong with me. You will never experience the joy. Because now what will happen if you don't recognize that, if you don't believe that, is you will work yourself to try to obtain and achieve this joy. And you will fail. You'll fail. You'll be like every other Pharisee, every other Jewish person in the Old Testament. You can't achieve it. You have to acknowledge that there's something wrong with me. I'm in need of Jesus Christ. I'm in need of his new wine. Because I'm without. Which brings me to the third point. How did he do it? How did Jesus do it? Well, we know that 
hearing this story at the wedding in the immediate context, he took these Jewish water jars, these ceremonial water jars, and he had his disciples fill them up to the brim, and then he told them to draw the buckets out, take them to the party, and there was wine. And so that's how he did it, but what does it mean for us? There's a significance to how Jesus did this. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jewish rites of purification, jars for Jewish rites of purification. Because in the Old Testament, what the priest had to do is that they had to, they had to clean themselves externally before they could enter the presence of God. They had to clean themselves. They had to make themselves clean, make themselves right before they could enter the presence of God. And so they, there were these ceremonial washing jars. And I was, when I was growing up, I'd always go over to a friend's house, and there was a rule in this house that as soon as you came in, you took your shoes off in the mudroom because dirt didn't belong on clean carpets. And so even if we wanted to go upstairs, we had to either crawl on our knees up the stairs to get to where we wanted to go, or we had to carry our shoes up the stairs because dirty, dirt, dirt didn't belong in the clean carpet. That's, that's what it's saying here. Before the priest could enter, they had to clean themselves because sinful impurities did not belong in the presence of God. Complete, holy, clean God. And so Jesus uses these purification jars to turn water into wine, what he's saying is you were about external cleanliness. I've come for an inward deep clean and which can only be done by me. A new heart, a new spirit, I will provide, but it can only be done by me. You can't achieve this. You can't achieve this on your own. He's saying, I've come to set new regulation. I've come to do a deep clean. It's no longer about your external, you know, visible appearance. Ask yourself, in the American church today, what do we get more consumed with? External appearance, uh, appearances? Or the condition inwardly, spiritually, of the church? What are, you, what, are, what are you more consumed with in your own life? Are you more consumed with the external appearance of your life? Or the inward spiritual condition? Because Jesus here is doing away with the external appearance of things. He said, I'm, come, I'm concerned with your heart. And the reason why I'm concerned with your heart is because there's something wrong with you. And I've come to replace that. I've come to bring you joy. But it's no longer through the ritual washings. It's through belief in me. I am the subject now. And we see that through the, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Right? 
that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Ask yourself, what are you drinking? What are you drinking? Something that you've produced? Or something that God has graciously gifted to you? And I can tell you this, there's a lot more joy and a lot more satisfaction when it's the new wine, what Jesus has graciously given you. There's a lot of joy to be had. I'm going to ask the band to come back up, Rebecca and Jonathan. And there's a a song I was thinking about this week. It's by Hillsong and it's called New Wine. Some of you may have heard it. There's a bridge in this song I want to read to you. It says this, where there is new wine, there is new power. There is new freedom. The kingdom is here. I lay down my old flames to carry your new fire today. Understand what it takes to experience this new wine not just conceptually, not just walking out of here going, okay, I get it, to experience, to, to, to actually taste the glory, the goodness, the beauty, to actually taste it. What it takes is to lay down your flame, to lay down your perceptions, your opinions, to lay down being Lord of your own life, You have to lay all those things down. To experience the joy that he's came to give you. So ask yourself, what do I need to lay down today? What part of my life am I still playing Lord over? Because I don't want to give it up. Because it's convenient, it's comfortable, I enjoy it, whatever. But understand this, you're missing out. Your life is less than what God intended it to be. Because you have the opportunity, like the master here, to say, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. That's different. To express joy. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that a transcendent joy is available to us. That we have hope 
Because without hope, then we have nothing and we might as well just live in drudgery. Ride this ship down to wherever it's going. But that's not the case. You sent your son to redeem us, to redeem this world, to give us joy. Then you say, you invite us. You're inviting us to this eternal feast, this eternal fellowship, this eternal party that is going to take place forever in which we get to experience complete joy void of any suffering and any evil that's what you're inviting us to by sending your son to die for us to suffer to fulfill what we could never and I'm grateful for that God because I want to produce new wine. I don't want to take what you have provided for us. I don't want to take that in vain, God. I don't want to take that in vain. I don't want to drink the new wine, experience the glory, experience the new wine. I don't want to taste that and then go back to the old wine. I don't want to trample on you. And so help me to to, to remember, to reflect, to Sabbath on your new wine in the ways that you're showing me your glory throughout my life so that way I can express joy to the people that encounter me. So I can walk in to places and dance to wild cherry because I'm full of joy because I've drank in your new wine. And God, I pray for those in the room this morning that you've illuminated, you've already exposed the areas in our lives that we're still consuming the old wine and we're missing out on the joy and satisfaction. And now that you've exposed them, show them the glory. Let them get a taste of something new. Let it spark a fire for something different and to lay down their old flames. God, we just want to worship you now. Praise you for what you've done. Amen.